0: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 and 15 through 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, everybody. I think I heard Jason say that he and Brittany were going to hand out worship folders to anyone who did not get one on the way in. So if you need one, if you'll raise your hand, they will grab you one. It has sermon notes in there, but it also has in there the uh, announcements for the week and other cool stuff and a picture of little Maddox Murray that we will dedicate a promise at some point. But He is not going to be dedicated today. Uh, My name is John, actually Jonathan, and it means God's gracious gift, and you're welcome. (laughs) Um, Does anybody in the room know? I know you know your name. Do you know what your name means? Does anyone know? Like, you've you've looked it up, and just kind of slip your hand up. If you know what your name... What does your name mean, Eli? Uh, my God is God. My God is God. Very... God is my God. God is my God. Okay, I like that. Somebody else. What does is, what is your name mean? Yes, Doug? Doug is good, spelled backwards. Oh, Doug is good, <laughs> spelled backwards, just not well. Right, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, the yeah, yes, sir. Tell me your name. Connor. And Connor, what does your name mean? Wolfkin. Wolfkin. I like that. You seem more dangerous to me all of a sudden. I like that. Somebody else, what does your name mean? Somebody else. Vanette. Little van. <laughs> <laughs> Vanette's name means minivan. Amen. I didn't know that. Amen. Tina, what does your name mean? Tiny. Tiny. Very good, very good. Anybody else, have you ever done any research to know? Lucy, what does your name mean? Light? Light? Ah, I like it. Our names, um, maybe not so much in our context as in some other contexts, but names are understood to have some power and influence over the shape of our lives. Now, it can happen also today. Uh, I went to school with, grew up with, and went to school with, and traveled in a singing group for a little while with a guy, uh, and we were close enough that at times I would go and see some of his family, and he had a nephew who was named, like birth certificate, named Maniac. Strangely enough, that kid was hard to handle, right? It, there was almost a, a sense of uh, pressure felt when your name is Maniac, <laughs> When your given name is maniac, it seems to have some influence on in how you go about being you. When Jason does a, uh, a membership class, he's really good about opening that membership class. Mm. Here we go. With this very important question What is your name, right? What do you like to be called, right? See, if your name is Doug and you want to be called Doug and not Douglas, then it somehow hurts Doug and our relationship if I refer to him always as Douglas. So we want to make sure, what's that? Like that all the time. Yes, especially, especially when he's in trouble. My, yeah, yeah. So we want to make sure that we get your names right because names are important. I think we sense that our names are important. And maybe you have one of those names. Maybe you know the etymology of your name or the origin or the meaning of your name. Maybe you feel it and sense it and want to be the person who lives into and up to his or her name. If we feel that in any sense in our culture today, just know that they felt it a hundred times more um, in an ancient in all kinds of ancient cultures including ancient hebrew culture uh Elie Wiesel says this in jewish history a name has its own history and its own memory it connects beings with their origins that's incredible so a name would be chosen very carefully and you can see this throughout scripture a name would be chosen very carefully And then that name would, there would be this expectation that that name would set some sort of trajectory for that life. Very, very interesting stuff. Hard stuff, though, if you get renamed as an adult. (laughs) If you get renamed, if God renames you at, oh, I don't know, 99, it can be tough. It can be tough. Because once you are renamed, that can happen in a moment, right? You can be renamed by God in a moment, but it does not yet mean that you are everything that that name tries to communicate. You with me? We're going to see names changed. In fact, we're going to see it three different times in the passages we will deal with today. Names get changed three different times. And those names, here, this is really important. This is the end of the sermon. I don't want you to leave after this, but hear this. But those names handed to these people by God himself, those names aren't meant to communicate where this person is just yet. Those names communicate what God intends to see as God is committed, covenantally committed to this person throughout the entirety of that person's life. I hope that makes sense. If it didn't, I'm gonna try it again. The name that is handed to Abram, the name that is handed to Sarai, the name that is handed to Simon, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, and Simon becomes who? Peter. Those names don't magically change the DNA of the people involved, right? It doesn't magically change the character of the people involved. It does bespeak, though, of a connection and a covenant that God has made with these people that God would, God's self, commit to this covenant, commit to these people in the hopes of moving these people toward the full realization of their names. How good is that? That the name God gives to Abraham, the name God gives to Sarah, and the name Christ gives to Peter, they are commitments. They label the commitment God has made to these people just as much as they named the people, maybe more, maybe more. Let's work through these verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's, that's difficult. Now, you're saying maybe not for a 99-year-old because they're not going to do that much anyway. It's probably okay for them to be told to be blameless, but I don't know if the word blameless here means what you and I have grown up thinking that it means. And we're going to come back to this at the end, but this word blameless is crucial to the end of this sermon today. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous, 99-year-old Abram. Abram, whose name at this point means ancestor. Okay. 99 years old and ancestor. Now, we're in chapter 17. The promise has come some 24 years ago. Remember, it's all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abram and said, I want you to take Sarai. I want you guys to go to a different land altogether. Just follow my lead, follow my voice, and I am going to make a great Great movement of people, a huge family out of you. And part of the reason that they were sensitized to this, and part of the reason they would ultimately say yes, is because they felt the stigma of being childless. And feeling the stigma of being childless, they both wanted, perhaps more than anything else, they wanted to have children. And so for the promise of a child, they actually got up and moved into the unknown, following only the voice of this unknown God in the hopes of having a child. And then years pass. So many years pass that Abram starts to believe that he perhaps has misunderstood, so he kind of takes matters into his own hands. He says to his wife, Sarai, I know what I thought God said so many years ago, but maybe what God meant was that I'm supposed to sleep with her. Hagar what a terrible name for a person right Hagar right and then maybe that's what God meant and so Sarai who must have been bothered by this said well maybe you're right maybe you should maybe that's the way that God can build a family out of us and so Ishmael is born And for many years, Abram lives with this deep suspicion that this is what God must have meant, that God would move outside his own nuclear family, let's say, that God would allow this promise to be kept in and through Ishmael and his line. And now we're several years later in chapter 17, and God is going to say to Abram, no, you, 99-year-old man, and her 90-year-old woman, you're going to have a child. Going to make you exceedingly numerous. Abram falls on his face before God. God says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which means ancestor, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of many nations. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. But as he hears these words, he still thinks it's going to be through Ishmael, you know, because he's 99. Reasonable, right? That he would think it would happen this other way because he is, again, 99 years old. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see, because in Genesis 12, God tips his hand. God says, here's what I want to do. I want to have a people to call my very own. This is super important. We try to say this often here, maybe once, twice, three times a month. I want to have a people to call my very own because, God says, I will in and through these people reach all the people. Here again, here again, we are not the people who are trying to escape the world. When properly understood, the narrative tells us that we are the people God has chosen to use, for better or for worse, to reach the entire world. God has in mind saving the planet through us. And he's still saying it here in 17.7. He said it in a very important way last week when we are in Genesis chapter 9. Remember that. Noah, flood. God says, I am never going to do this again. I'm not going to wipe out humanity again. In fact, here is a sign that I am going to put in the clouds, and I will see it, God says, and you will see it. And when we see it, we will recognize again. And remember this covenant that I will be your God And you will be my people. Now, after this verse, after 17.7, we have all this discussion of circumcision, and we all start to squirm a little bit, okay? But understand it like this. Oh, hello, minivan. (laughs) Minivan. This mark of circumcision, handed down generation after generation after generation, would serve the same purpose as the rainbow in the clouds. Upon seeing this mark, God would say, yes, these are my people through whom I will reach all the people. And the people, upon seeing this mark and the participation in the making of this mark, would say, yes, we are those people, and God has chosen us to reach all the people. So there's a sense in which the rainbow and then the mark of circumcision do the same thing. They are the constant reminders of the eternal commitment and promise and covenant of God. How are we doing? So far so good? But it's not just for Abraham. It's also for Sarah. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah or princess shall be her name. You just have to understand, in that context, way back when, in that context, to be childless is to be pretty close to being worthless. And so you feel like anything but a princess. You don't feel like royalty, but God says, I'm the one who bestows royalty. I'm the king. I'm going to tell you what real royalty looks like, and she looks like a princess to me. And so, Sarah though you may not feel like it this morning, you will be understood as royal in some sense because along with Abram, you will be the parents of a movement that will have no end. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now this is where both Abraham and Sarah start to go, Ooh, What? I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, you would expect that our hero in faith, Abraham, would respond properly to such a declaration. And so, Abraham does this. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, What? Well, I'm 99, and Sarah is 90. God has forgotten what physiology is like, apparently. In other words, within the covenant that God makes with God's people, evidenced by the changing of name, Within the covenant that God makes with God's people, there is room for doubt and even laughter. You see, because Abraham, the name, and Sarah, the name, doesn't so much tell you what you need to know about Abraham and Sarah, but it tells you all that you need to know about God. Oh, come on, that was lots better than that. All right, I'm gonna, maybe you didn't, okay. The name, the names. They don't yet tell you the truth, I guess you could say, about Abraham because he's not yet the father of nations. She is not yet, probably doesn't feel like, yet, a princess. But these names, Abraham and Sarah, tell you all you need to know about God and the covenant that God has made with these people to build them to these places where she could be a princess and he could be the father of many nations. These names tell you all you need to know about God. And within the covenant that God has made with God's people, there's room for doubt, questioning, falling on your face, and laughing, incredulous, because what God said can't be true. He laughed at God and God kept him. You could say he mocked God. Have you ever gotten this deep impression or suspicion that if you mock God, lightning is soon to happen somewhere near you, maybe on you? But what if God's commitment to us is so big it can absorb your humanness? By the way, Abraham laughs in chapter 17 and Sarah laughs in chapter 18. God comes along in chapter 18 and says, "Hey, Sarah, I'll be back here in a year and you'll have a bouncing baby boy." And she goes, oh, "I don't think so." And God said, "Hey, I can hear you laughing. It's really in the Bible. Sarah says, I wasn't laughing. God says, "Uh, yeah, you were. You were laughing. And by the way, your son's name will be Isaac, which means laughter. So in other words, every time you look at Isaac, every time you call Isaac by name, you will remember not only that you laughed, but that I kept you and I kept my promises to you. Oh, love this stuff. You don't have it in the book of Mark, but you have it in the book of Matthew. I'm not sure why it's left out of Mark. This, this scene happens in the book of Matthew. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, that part is also in Mark. Who do, you, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And you know these answers. You've probably heard these passages a lot. People say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, Or Elijah, or a prophet. And then Jesus looks at Simon Peter, Simon, and says, Who do you say that I am? He says, Well, I've been thinking about this. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Messiah, Simon says to Jesus, the Son of the living God. And in response, to that confession, Jesus said to Simon, let me tell you something, Simon, we're changing your name. We're going to change your name from Simon. It's a pretty good name. It's a fine name. But now you're going to be Peter, the rock, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it gates of Hades will not prevail against this church built on this rock Simon Peter you have answered well now here's what we know about Simon Peter he was not at this point a finished product amen can I get yeah in fact maybe at this point Simon Peter is really not even Simon Peter I mean, Jesus said it, so Jesus pronounced it, and Jesus promises it, but that doesn't mean that it changed Peter's DNA just yet. It didn't necessarily completely change Peter's character just yet. It didn't necessarily change Peter's appetites and dreams and desires. It didn't necessarily change Peter's definitions of success because what you need to hear in the name right here in the naming part is not so much what you need to know about Simon Peter But in the name that Christ gives to Simon Peter, you know all you need to know about Christ's commitment to Simon Peter. I will build you into a rock. Then he began to teach them that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. I love scripture. He, quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, Dr. Tashin helped me with this this week. Hear, hear this Jesus, having renamed Simon Peter, is not renaming him again Satan. <laughs> He's not. What I think is happening is this. I think Jesus hears in the voice of Simon a very horribly familiar voice that he heard when he was undergoing all of that temptation, the temptation to win according to the world's terms and definitions of words like winning and victory. I think he heard something awfully familiar in the voice of Simon Peter. He heard the voice of the tempter though it was the mouth of Simon Peter and I think Jesus was saying in the direction of Simon Peter but to the same tempter and temptation get behind me because the rest of the story demonstrates that Christ's commitment to Peter has not changed Though he has used this line, get behind me, Satan, you can see in the rest of the stories that we have, especially those that tell the story of Christ's interaction with Simon Peter, you can see the posture of of Jesus and how Jesus is bound and determined to build the Simon into Simon Peter. You see, because this name given to Simon Peter tells you all that you need to know about the God who makes covenants and commitments. Can you hear me now? He called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, okay, folks, Simon Peter took a shot at this and missed. If you really want to be my follower. And you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And on Ash Wednesday, a couple of Wednesdays ago, the ashes were imposed. I love that word, the ashes were imposed. And many of us received the ashes on our foreheads. And we even said that night that this was a tangible testimony. They goes something like this. I take the ash and the sign of the cross to admit and confess, to be honest about, to be vulnerable about, to be transparent about my failure to live up to the Christ on the cross. Now some people can't do that. There's some really good people who have trouble coming and receiving the ash. There are some people, really good people, who have real trouble wearing the evidence of their failure to be Christ. But some folks went from here to the basketball court and played in our men's league back there. And yes, by halftime, their crosses were a nasty mess. They had to look like war paint by halftime, right? But they wore the crosses and had opportunity to answer questions. Hey, you've got something on your, yeah, it's a, it's a cross. Well, why do you have a cross on your forehead? Well, it's because I have failed. to live up to the high calling of Christ, to live up to the high calling of the cross. Man, not anybody that's here, obviously, right? But let's say about all the people who aren't here, okay? Some people hate that. There are some people for whom Christianity is the hard work you do to make sure that people don't know that you have failed, I mean, because we're called to be blameless, right? And isn't that what it means to be sanctified? Isn't that what it means? We use this word, we've heard it used a lot. We've heard it used so often that I nod my head when I hear somebody say it because it's familiar to me, not necessarily because I know what we're saying. But I think what it means, when I hear this word, sanctification, I hear this other word ringing in my head perfect. And for a lot of Christians, if you can't be perfect, at least help people to think that you are perfect. There are some people who believe, and by the way, this doctrine of sanctification, it is huge for us. We deeply believe in this doctrine of sanctification. But I don't know that we have always articulated it very well. In fact, I do think there are times when we have left people with the impression that once sanctified, you are no longer, oh, what's the word, human. That you are perfected. Because doesn't it say, walk before me and be blameless? And, and truthfully, that word blameless is in some translations translated as Perfect. And doesn't it say in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? And so we leave many believers in a very difficult spot, having to make a very difficult decision. Okay, do I play the game and try as best I can to help people think that I am not a bad person, that I am, in fact, perfect, or do I follow my inner inclination just say, this isn't real. I found a, a terribly troubling blog post that I want to reference. Her name is Carissa Knox Sorrel, and she's written a blog post a couple of years ago now. I'm a Nazbin and this might be why. Nazbin. I think it's kind of funny. You can actually get a t-shirt, I promise, and that's it right there. (laughs) I'm a Nazbin. She writes this entire blog post about how and why she is a Nazbin, and I'm going to read whole chunks of it to you, if that's okay. We ex-Nazarenes have a term we call ourselves, Nazbens. You can even buy a Nazbin t-shirt. Like many Nazbens, I still look back on the Nazarene Church with some fondness and a lot of good memories. When I left it, I was a bit disillusioned with it and was looking for liturgy. But as I reflect on my upbringing in the home of Nazarene ministers, what I see is guilt. She's written a book, and she's walking through her in her book. She's walking through her experience and her her life and journey of faith. I've been looking through old journals yet again as I revise my manuscript. I kept prayer journals for years. In those journals, I see a girl desperate to please God and the adults in her life, and a girl always yearning to be a better Christian. I was a teenager who had devotions every single day, sometimes twice a day. I was probably a better Christian than most teenagers, yet it wasn't enough. There was always a deeper blessing or understanding I grasped at, or a special word of God that I was waiting to hear, or the need to ask his forgiveness for not thinking about him 24-7. In the Nazarene church, there is a second work of grace after salvation, sanctification or perfected holiness. I've heard many different descriptions of sanctification, and I will not try to explain those here, but I strove for that second thing I had to achieve, which seemed like perfection, I probably prayed six or seven different times to get sanctified. I thought you weren't supposed to sin at all after you got sanctified. So when I did, I just thought that the most recent time I'd pray for sanctification wasn't real enough or meaningful enough or heartfelt enough. So out of guilt, I prayed for it again and again and again. She goes on to say that guilt was for her for many years the prime motivation The prime energy source for her movements of faith. But she reached a point where she recognized and understood that guilt was never going to be enough to push her high enough. To move her far enough to get her where God wanted her to be. Turns out, her parents also cratered within our same movement. Parents split up. Mom went to a different denomination. She's lost track of that. She says, I recently shared with my mother a definition of faith. She gave me back in 1999 that I had written in my journal. Mom said, a Christian is a person who loves God totally, wholly, and completely. A Christian is a person who chooses to live a life of righteousness no matter what, no matter what anyone thinks or does, a Christian is a person of surrender. doesn't sound all bad, actually. I thought, the blogger says, I thought that it seemed like a very old-timey Nazarene type of answer. I thought that my mother might have a different answer now, so I asked her how she might define Christian faith now, and here is some of what she said. What is faith? Faith is screaming at God for not intervening, intervening when my baby was killed. Faith is questioning whether all those scriptures and promises that I had read, quoted, and taught are true or a bunch of bunk. Faith is wrestling with the God of silence and mystery who seems to leave you to struggle alone with the questions and the pain. Faith is acknowledging that God is God, and I am not, and God really doesn't owe me anything. Faith is believing that the resurrection story is real, and my baby boy is in God's presence, healed, and knows nothing but joy. A Christian, then, is someone who has decided to follow Jesus and chooses to live his or her life in a supportive community of faith as a disciple living, learning, sharing, giving, becoming, resting, and trusting in the God who loved us enough to sacrifice his only begotten son for us. A healthy community of faith is welcoming and affirming. It is a place where you can take off your mask and be who you are. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will be your church family, and you can trust them with your life story and your faith story. They do not give up on you. They will enrich your faith, and you will enrich theirs because you walk toward the cross together. And she ends her blog with a quote from Henry Nowen. The great spiritual task facing me is to so fully trust that I belong to God that I can be free in the world, free to speak even when my words are not received, free to act even when my actions are criticized, ridiculed, and considered useless. I am convinced that I will truly be able to love the world when I fully believe that I am loved far beyond its boundaries. I put another, I think I put this in your worship folder. We talked about that mark earlier when you're marked as believers. I don't think that mark should be perfection, not behavioral perfection. I think it should be something else. From GBOD, it's a, it's a Methodist um, discipleship website. Discipleship to Jesus is another invitation into covenant with God To walk before God and be blameless. To walk before God means to carry out one's life in the face of God. To be blameless in the NRSV means to have complete integrity. Or as it is often translated, to be perfect. So perfect here is not the perfect execution of your life's plan and morality day in and day out to be perfect is to be honest enough to wear the ashes to be honest about where you are in the journey to be honest enough to say honest enough to say that i am who i am more because of god's commitment to me than my commitment to god but your commitment to god and my commitment to god still matters on saturday nights here We have celebrate recovery. It is not just celebrate brokenness and pain and anguish and anxiety. If it's just that, we need to do something different. But it's against this larger backdrop within which we continually tell one another, no, 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 God has committed to you and God is doing something in you and for you and then with you and through you. And God does it just as well with your failures as with your successes so long as you keep coming back to the fire. So long as you are committed to the process whereby God makes oak trees out of acorns. So long as you put your life complete with the successes and failures against the larger backdrop of what it is that God is doing with you and against an even larger backdrop of what it is that God is doing on the planet with folks like you. And so we begin with Ash Wednesday. Why? Hear this. Why? Because we're imperfect? Well, in some sense. But in the sense we've heard today, it's also because we're trying to be perfect, meaning people of integrity. And we recognize that there is no life of discipleship Without integrity. We've said it like this. You have no relationship that's any better than that relationship's level of honesty. But it's true of your relationship with God. Would you like to be a disciple? And some of you don't. Okay. Would you like to be a disciple? On par with the likes of Simon Peter. Who eventually, quite literally, took up his own cross. If that is in any way attractive to you, then the crucial ingredient that gets you from here to there, crucial amongst other important and crucial ingredient, one of these crucial ingredients is this, integrity. Be honest about who you're not so that God can do what only God can do. Ash Wednesday started us on this very specific season where we do just that, week in, week out, day in, day out. If you have given something up for Lent, then you are day in, day out, hour in, hour out, moment by moment, acknowledging that someone other than God threatens to take control of your life and that someone typically is you and me. So moment by moment, we practice And God does something with our practicing. God makes disciples out of us. God made out of Simon, Simon Peter. And so we come to the table in honesty and in integrity. (laughs) <laughs> recognizing that it's not just the bread and the cup. It's not just the body broken for me. It's the body broken by me. It's not just the cup shed, blood shed for me. In so many ways, human and normal as I am, it's the blood shed by me. But we eat and drink toward forgiveness, yes? Yes? But toward restoration and reconciliation, these are intentionally tangible symbols and elements that take up residence in your physical body because God has in mind the recapturing of your entirety, including your body and not just your soul. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be perfect. What you need to hear God saying is, walk before me and tell me the truth because if you'll tell me the truth, then my commitment to you will grow you to places you could never have dreamed. So walk before me and be honest. (laughs) Heavenly Father, bless these elements now. bread in this cup bless these elements and may they mark us in one way or another may they mark us mark us to be your people people in process sometimes in a process that's painful but people in process nonetheless mark us lord as people of great honesty deep deep integrity May the world hear from us, not just a Nazarene doctrine of sanctification, but the great, deep, historic Christian hope that you see something in us that we don't see in ourselves. And that we, on a regular basis, work very hard to give more and more and more of ourselves to you, knowing that you can do something with us that we can't do for ourselves. So God, receive all that we make available to you today and ask for more. And as we receive these symbols of selflessness, broken body, shed blood, may they nourish us so that we too may someday, like Simon Peter, may we also be broken and given. It was on the night that he was portrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of this, remember me. Remember the covenantal commitment that God, seen most clearly in the face of Christ, the covenantal commitment that God has made to you exactly where you are on the journey. Same way later, he took the cup and he held it before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. And every time you drink it, remember, remember, remember. I hope you will come, by the way, we're going to come today to the center aisle like we did on Ash Wednesday. And Jason and I are going to serve you after I cleanse my hands. Thank you. (laughs) But come today with your hands cupped. Ready to receive that which you cannot grab or purchase or charge. (laughs) Ready to receive that which you are given as a gift. Ready to receive that which can do for you what you can never do for yourself. And that is build and grow you to the place where you can finally live into and up to God's names for you. All across the sanctuary now. If you would stand and kind of move to the center aisle. And Jason and I are going to serve all of us as Brandon sings. Mike back, there it is. And if you would like to find a place to pray, then Aaron will be over here and Brittany will be over here to pray that very familiar prayer for healing. We would encourage that. Walt and Linda aren't here today, but I'm telling you, you can count on these two to pray for you just as well
2: I need you to soften my heart and break me apart I need you to open my eyes and see that your shape my life and all I am I surrender give me faith to trust what you say that you're good and your love is great I give you my life I need you To soften my heart And break me apart I need you To pierce through the dark cleanse every part of me and all I am I surrender give me faith to trust what you say that your Your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life I may be weak Your spirit's strong in me My flesh may fail My God, you never will strong in me my flesh may fail my God you never will give me faith to trust what you say that you're good and your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life What you say that you're good if your love is great, I'm broken inside.
1: that there are days that we don't live up to our names. On those days, God, help us to get better and to be better by remembering that your commitment to us is unwavering. Help us to remember that our performance doesn't in any way inhibit or change your commitment to us, your covenantal commitments to us as your people. At the very same time, God, remind us that it matters what we do with our bodies. Remind us, God, that there are ways to respond, to respond to your gift of incalculable grace. Remind us, God, that necessary to this entire journey of faith, this entire process of of a word that we use so often, the word sanctification, remind us that crucial to this process is this deep sense of integrity that allows us to say all that we are and all that we aren't, all against the backdrop of all that you are. So may we have the strength, God, the strength to admit when we fail. May we have the strength to seek your forgiveness. And may we have the imagination to see how it is that you will use all of the above to move us to a better, greater, deeper place. How we can be more useful as the honest people of God as we are used like tools in your hands to reach and reclaim and restore all of creation. Father, there are many in our number who are ill or sick. And so we bring them to you now, not because you didn't already know, but because we want you to hear our hearts as we cry out for them. We pray for Iris Glisten, the hospital in Yukon we pray for June Adams we cry out that you would intercede on June's behalf to reverse the trajectory of her disease we pray the same thing God for Helen Jameson that you would somehow do something that only you can do and restore these ladies to our fellowship restore them to health bring healing Now, I would ask that you would pray a prayer for healing for someone that you know could really use it. Perhaps they are sick or hurt. Perhaps it's emotional, mental, or even relational. But pray specifically as you know how, a prayer for healing for that one or for those. that you like to ask you to pray for your church yes pray for your pastors but pray also for the entirety of our congregation the kids and the teens and the college students and everybody that we would continue to be a place that talks openly about the possibility of sanctification sanctification Lord, we would like to actually pray that you would accomplish in and through us the words of the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. And so we will conclude our time of praying now with the Lord's prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread